0: But water, water keeps drawing me back. I, I didn't choose to go back to it. I got put on the Delta Stewardship Council. Was drawn in to help mediate some legislation that was going through to reform the Delta, and I didn't ask to be brought in. I got dragged back in. And same is true of the State Water Board. So it just seems to be a place where, at least some people think I can add a little bit of value, and I like being helpful. Now I'm fully, I'm fully in now, but uh, and focused on it by choice.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Let's Talk About Water. This is a podcast about the future of our planet's water and why you should care. I'm your host, Jay Famiglietti. Well, we're all a few weeks into those New Year's resolutions now. Maybe you're trying to move your body more after a long day at your desk, stop drinking that fourth or fifth cup of coffee, or you're trying to make some time for some calm and reflection in your day. For me, I'm trying to jog every other day. Today was my first fail, by the way and it's only the middle of January? Well, either way, we're all hoping to improve in some way. Today, I'm asking you to make one quick resolution with me because I know that one thing that really needs improving by everyone is our relationship with water. So let's make a quick resolution to learn something new about water and water policy this year. Earth is trying hard to keep up with humanity's water needs, but really, It's just too much. Every time you turn on the tap or flush the toilet or take a shower or wash your clothes, that water must be treated, transported, heated, and returned back to the system to do it all over again. That process takes a lot of energy. And with climate change, some regions will experience drought and water scarcity, which means less water for people, for the environment, and to grow food the need for integrated and collaborative water management will only become stronger. With me today to talk about water management and policy is an expert, a dear friend and colleague, Felicia Marcus. Felicia is an attorney and consultant who has a very distinguished background in water management and policy. I know Felicia from her time as chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board during the state's worst drought in recent history. She previously served as regional administrator of the US EPA Region 9, the Pacific Southwest region. She's currently the Landreth Visiting Fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program and a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. It's so great to have you on the podcast, Felicia. I think uh, last time we saw each other, back when people were actually traveling, we were in Tel Aviv.
0: I think that's right. That's correct.
1: And here we are. So you mentioned you're a part-time academic. So you are a visiting fellow at Stanford University, Water in the West. What are you doing there? How's that going?
0: Well, it's great. I mean, it's this wonderful fellowship that um, William Landreth, who's a wonderful man, set up. And the, the goal is to bring people from the outside world into Stanford, to be a part of the mix, to bring in practitioners or people from other academic institutions. Um, And historically it's been for a three month full time or six month half time, uh, but I'll be there well over a year, which allows me the chance to do more interesting, longer term projects. It's also a chance to write a thing or to teach a class or whatever you like. My main uh, issues for my self study are all climate adaptation and water, uh, regulatory reform, water rights, a little bit on California water specifically, but not as much as you might think. It's more focusing on the things I didn't have a chance to deal with when I was dealing with drought and um, Bay Delta, Uh, but the other projects deal with everything from uh, ecosystem restoration and climate and the overlap and over, and the opportunities, um, uh, land use and water, dam removal of all of those tens of thousands of small dams that don't get the headlines but uh, make a big difference, and thinking about new tools to protect in-stream flows and rivers. So it's going to be a busy year, but really, I think, very interesting and challenging intellectually, and hopefully I'll do some useful work that other people can use.
1: Um it sounds really interesting. But you know, you were talking about your uh your career and there's a couple of questions I want to ask you. Like how did you get into water and water policy? I mean, so you're going to school, you're going to law school, you're going to college and when did you say like, "Wow, I'm going to focus on water?"
0: Well, water kind of found me. You know, I'm more of a expert generalist and I, you know, in college I majored in East Asian studies, had nothing to do uh with this. And then uh, I fell into environmental work, which is a longer story, which is why I became a lawyer. And when I, uh, I went clerked and then I was in a fellowship at the Center for Law and Public Interest. And I was in um, just doing intake one day and someone from the Sierra Club came in on behalf of uh, what they were calling the coalition to stop dumping sewage into the ocean and said they need a lawyer. And I said, well, okay, I'll go I'll go to your hearing at the regional water board over the city of L.A.'s application to get a waiver of full secondary treatment, which is the treatment standard for ocean dischargers. And uh, and I walked down there, and the one of the people who, the main organizer of this coalition was a woman named Dorothy Green, who I had known on the phone from before I went to law school as a water activist, but it, you know, and I had done work on things and, uh, uh, you know, like the ocean, all that, but it wasn't my core thing. And she pretty much handed me her testimony and said, I have to leave. Will you give this? And that's how I became her lawyer. I read it first, of course, before I did it. And I became one of the founders of Heal the Bay. So it really, sewage was my entry drug into the water world, pretty much. And I, we were just, it's fascinating, actually. So we were captivated by the issue, but also by the complexity. And, uh, and then that led to being involved in other things. In some ways, I got more involved in the water supply issues when I went to US EPA, and we had to set standards for the, the Bay Delta, uh, which someone had to draw on a napkin for me when I took the job to let me know what I was getting into. So it's like, you never know. I mean, I've done air and toxics and land use. I mean, I'm pretty much ecumenical on issues. I'm more like solving problems and issues, but water water keeps drawing me back. I, I didn't choose to go back to it. I got put on the Delta Stewardship Council, was drawn in to help mediate some legislation that was going through to reform the Delta, and I didn't ask to be brought in. I got dragged back in, and same is true of the state water board. So it just seems to be a place where at least some people think I can add a little bit of value, and I like being helpful. Now I'm fully I'm fully in now, but uh, and focused on it by choice.
1: No, I I know you're fully in. I know that you're a huge supporter of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and of getting more women involved in environmental careers and water-related careers and water leadership. So what advice do you have for young women who are, say, they're in high school or college, and they're thinking about what to do for, for their careers?
0: Well, the environmental field, I think, is an important one to be in because it's about us. It's about everything. It's connected to everything. Um, whether you're interested in science or business or um, advocacy or being a lawyer or being in communications, I mean, we need it all. And so uh, being involved is, um, there are a lot of different pathways. I mean, I think 30, 40 years ago when a lot of us were getting into the field, we had to kind of invent it ourselves. Now there are majors that are mind-bogglingly interesting in terms of combining Different things, uh, you know, geographers and geologists and hydrogeologists. And so you can sort of create a life where you take the kinds of things you like to do and marry them with the real world. Um, And I mean, I'm a big fan of doing something where you can have an impact in your community and in the world, both because we certainly need the help, but also because it's very empowering and enriching in one's life. And so that, that mix of what you do for the world and what you do for yourself can come together really well in this field. And I think you're going to start seeing real opportunities for creative, flexible thinkers to figure out how to improve their communities by you know, figuring out how to get what Ellen Haneck at PPIC calls more pop per drop. Um, from the top of a watershed to the bottom, which, of course, is an ancient concept. Historically, it's only in the last, I don't know, 100 years that we've divorced ourselves from reality so much that we look at water in silos of, you know, the flood control people, the drinking water people, the wastewater people, and others. If you look holistically at it, you can get way more good for society and the earth out of the same drop of water than the paradigm we've been operating under where the flood control folks try to get it out to sea as fast as possible and it ends up carrying all the pollutants on all our city streets. And meanwhile, you're importing water through pipes and pumping it from hundreds of miles away to get it to a given um, city, when in fact you could capture it, reuse it, sink it back into the ground, green your city, slow the flow for flood control, I have a much better quality of life. That's all opening up. I mean, the the one place where I think the world is getting more complex in the long run is for people who want to keep things narrow and just do their one set of widgets and hope that if they do their widgets perfectly and everybody else does, it'll get clean out there, which it won't.
1: So maybe we need a new saying like, away with widgets.
0: Away with widgets, yes.
1: Away with widgets. Let us now talk about your work as share. Of the California State Water Resources Control Board. And, you know, I always marveled at the work that you did because you were doing it through this epic drought of the last decade. And I just saw tremendous output from you in terms of energy, enthusiasm, and a positive attitude way more, way more positive than mine. Like, I wanna know, you know, when you look back at it, how you feel about the work that you did, maybe talk to us about some of the accomplishments. And have you recovered? I mean, that must have taken a tremendous toll on all of Felicia.
0: Oh, that's very thoughtful. And thank you for the compliment. Yeah, but I planned for that. The key thing in that that was good was we went straight to the public. And we put out all the data. I I was very proud of how we put out the data. So it wasn't just us holding the data and making decisions. Everybody could see our data, which I think is a, a really important way to democratize a conversation. And people could see how their own city was doing, which their own city might not have been telling them. In comparison to other cities, they felt like comparing themselves to, And the public responded very well. And it's never bounced, it's bounced back a little, which is not inappropriate, but it, it's still down, you know, 15, 20, 20, still 25% in some places. So once you learn, you don't need to use that much water, you don't. And then we got uh, legislation passed to kind of formalize that, a, a more thoughtful way of doing it in the in the long term. The other thing that I'm proud of is what we did on recycling. And that I give Gary Darling from, then from Delta Diablo A lot of credit for coming to us and then working with the Water Reuse Association to give us estimates of how many projects were out there on the drawing board that could get into construction if we gave them a lower interest rate. And we ended up, make a long story short, we put a billion and a half dollars out in grants and loans during the drought to incentivize actually doing those Projects And on Stormwater, we are experimenting with some flexibilities to help incentivize that really hard multi-benefit work on the ground and, you know, all eyes on L.A. County, larger than the city, uh, in their passage of a $300 million a year measure that you'll see uh, L.A. transform in terms of far more green space, recharge, urban resilience with the city of L.A., and Mayor Garcetti really being leaders in setting goals for 100% recycling of their wastewater uh, and uh, reducing their dependence on imported water in the next 15 years. So it's going to be massive. So from a Malcolm Gladwell tipping point standpoint, we've got enough early adopters that are going to do a good job that they can bring their peers along, and you can leave government to deal with the true laggards rather than government having to implement everything from on high, which may feel righteous, but isn't going to get you the same result as you will if you empower local leadership.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the transition to the new administration of the United States. By the time this show goes out, President-elect Joe Biden will be the president. What do you foresee happening in water policy under President Biden?
0: Well, I have a lot of optimism that we will see a greater focus on water and water policy than we've probably ever seen. Uh, I think the time is now. I mean, Flint has something to do with that. I think you'll see attention to that. There's already more attention to the issue of drinking water on tribal lands, which is close to my heart and something some of my friends are working on very actively right now. I have great hopes in the infrastructure arena for a few reasons. One is, when he talked about the infrastructure bill in one of his talks lately, he said an infrastructure bill for water, transportation, whatever. Not only was the first time I ever heard water used when people talk about an infrastructure bill that would be holistic as opposed to when you're just doing the Corps of Engineers budget or things like that, but he put it first. And I, you know, I tweeted, he said water first and a lot of people knew what I was talking about. That's all I said. I didn't attach it to anything. And he had an infrastructure working group co-chaired by the head of the U.S. Water Alliance, Radica Fox, who's one of the bright stars of the next generation of environmental leaders, who's an integrative thinker. The whole organization is geared around progressive water agencies that want to do one water, you know, drinking water, flood control, um, wastewater, recycling, the whole gamut. So I'm hoping that will influence what they do. And my big hope is that because he's making climate Uh, a number one priority across all agencies, that this will be our opportunity to finally bring climate adaptation to the fore, which is way overdue. I think uh, in the environmental world and elsewhere, we made a mistake of focusing on climate mitigation, meaning reducing emissions, to the exclusion of adaptation, because I think some people looked at it as capitulation. And I think that's a mistake for two reasons. One is people are going to get hurt they're going to die and there'll be property damage and all of that from this. So delaying and adapting is wrong. Number two, I think the adaptation stories put a higher real world visibility on the impacts of climate change, which can drive and motivate more calls for mitigation. We'll see. So the opportunity is there. You know, the peril is that as usual, it doesn't have the same geopolitical clash of the titans that you have in air quality and climate regulation or even in toxics. And so it gets left to being an afterthought. But I'm, I'm hoping, oh, wait, one more thing, technology. There is this revolution in water technology, just as there is in environmental technology generally that needs to be um, accelerated. And the federal government can do that very well, in addition to setting standards again and the things that haven't happened in the last administration that can save all of us time and energy, because it's hard even for California to do all the research on all of these things. But I think um, there's this opportunity to do, uh, you know, incubation and acceleration and uh, sharing of knowledge about the revolution in sensors for quality and uh, infrastructure repair. I mean, we can do way more infrastructure work at less cost today than we could have.
1: So, ironically, I was just about to ask you, but they're on these same topics that you already started speaking to. So, what are some examples of key innovations in the water sector that you've seen?
0: Well, there's a whole suite of sort of big data and sensing technology. I mean, the kinds of things that you were doing at NASA that give you a visual. And there's, again, I'm an organizer, there's huge power. In a in a visual, it's not just about words. It, it's same same thing as why I think the 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 visuals and the stories around adaptation are more compelling than talking about parts per million in the atmosphere or degrees centigrade temperature rise, because it just makes it real to real people, which has far more power. All those data visualization tools, the ability to use AI to be predictive in a more fine-grained way, as opposed to using management by calendar for everything, whether it's flood control and and flood levels or even ecosystem restoration. I mean, we'll be able to manage with far more precision. You have a A revolution in uh, taking that data and getting it to people's iPhones so you can help farmers put out just the right amount of water as opposed to too much water, which is good.
1: We're actually we're actually working on that kind of stuff. It's very rich.
0: I love that stuff.
1: We've talked a little bit about infrastructure, but what do you think are some key infrastructure needs, you know, where you live right now or in California?
0: Well, I think the most exciting thing and the most important thing is integrating nature-based solutions because it solves more problems than one. You know, we don't have unlimited dollars, but we also, we can solve a lot of problems with concrete for sure, but we'll live in a gray, stale environment and there are downsides. So the most exciting thing happening here is a whole funding measure, Measure AA that was passed to spend $500 million on nature-based solutions, horizontal levees and wetland restoration rather than seawalls around San Francisco Bay. All of a sudden you will see better use of water, you'll see protection of property, but you'll see more beautiful places for people to take their kids and walk their dogs and connect to nature. We could clean up every micron of pollution and we'd live in a gray, dull existence. So unless we connect nature and people, we're missing a really important part of what it means to be a person.
1: I want to wrap it up as follows, Felicia. For our listeners, you and I have often spoken together, sometimes one right after the other. I think maybe the last time, almost at the same time, might have been in Ojai in in California.
0: Yeah, probably.
1: Beautiful visit we had there. Right. Right. And Felicia, when the two of us go back to back, sometimes refers to us as a glass half empty, and that's me, (laughs) and a glass half full, and that's Felicia. And so I want to know, are you still feeling like the glass is still half full?
0: Oh, the glass is more full. I mean, as much as I'm heartbroken by some of the stasis on the Bay Delta fish versus farmers and other water users arena in California. I, I see this uptick in technology. I see much more interest in water than we had. And so I'm in the optimist camp and I've had the chance to spend more time and it, by choice working with local leaders. In both my Stanford work and my consulting work, Southern California, the goals for recycling and stormwater capture are massive. I mean, even with the Metropolitan Water District proposing what will be even bigger than Orange County, the biggest water recycling project in the world, with engagement across all of Southern California and even Las Vegas and potentially Arizona. And so to me, that's breathtakingly exciting.
1: Sounds like your glass is almost overflowing.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's so far to go. I, we're, not, I remain, we're not at all at, uh, there's no spillage uh, in my in my immediate future.
1: Okay. Okay. I, I think maybe I've become cautiously optimistic and I'm less pessimistic, you know, compared to how I was maybe, maybe 10 years ago. And part of that's just seeing all the progress that was made in particular in, in California. So uh, thanks very much, Felicia. Felicia Marcus is a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Water in the West program a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, and the former chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board. She's also my friend and esteemed colleague. It was a pleasure chatting with you today, Felicia.
0: Well, it's always great, and this was really fun. Thank you to you and your team for setting it up. I'm I'm truly honored.
1: Thank you so much. And just like that, we've accomplished our resolution, learning something new about water and water policy. Well, that's it for another week of Let's Talk About Water, which is produced by the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan with the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Jay Famiglietti. Thanks to everyone who helped put the show together, including Mark Ferguson, Laura McFarlane, Amy Hergut, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, Stacey Demansky, Aaron Stevens, Nikki Manfredi, and our producer, Sean Perpick. And as always, special thanks to Linda Lillienfeld. I know you won't want to miss what we have in store for you coming up, so why don't you make it easy for yourself and set an alert so you'll know the moment a new episode drops. Remember, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other quality podcasting platforms. You can also stream us on Facebook at Let's Talk About Water Podcast or follow us on Twitter at LTAW Podcast. See you next time.
0: Got 10 minutes? We know you do, especially for thought leaders like Biff Naked, Margaret Atwood, Desmond Cole, Amanda Paris, Andre Picard, and the list goes on and on. The conversation piece is a new podcast from The Walrus. Subscribe today and get new perspective delivered on the ACAST app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play.